the <coughs> subject for this evening's talk is trust and emptiness. <coughs> From time to time, perhaps we are reminded of the events in this area two and a half thousand years ago. And we have been told through the recorded texts, through the oral tradition of teachers through two and a half thousand years, of the essential human experiences, the essential purposes of life, and when we sift through much of the superficialities of existence, we come to what might be and has been described as some of the basic truths of life. And it was formulated after the Buddha's night of enlightenment. It was formulated by him and spoken of as the four noble truths. And he said that human beings are essentially concerned with the issues around suffering and unrest in life and their resolution. And it is said that following this night of uh, insight and realization under the tree, he formulated the very body of his teachings in a simple but rather effective conceptual framework passed on through all the generations, namely that there is suffering in this world, that suffering is brought about by conditions, that there is the cessation of it, and fourthly, there is the way for that, for that cessation. And in that, in looking at these four noble truths of life, a concerned and reflective meditative human being will be looking more deeply and carefully into the first noble truth of suffering. Sometimes it has been said that this suffering is in the tradition and rather unwisely, has said, life is suffering. There is no passage to my knowledge, and have 25 years of familiarity with the text, where the Buddha has made such a statement. I do not know of that passage. What he has stated is that suffering arises according to the conditions for it to arise. And then he once asked, 
what are the conditions, what is this suffering? And then he stated quite specifically, he targeted what is the situation of human suffering. And then he said, not getting what we want, losing what we have, being separated from what or who we love, and being attached or identified with body, feelings, perceptions, mental formations including thoughts, consciousness including awareness. Not getting what we want, losing what we have, being separated from what or who we love, and being caught up or identified with, bound into body, feelings, perceptions, thoughts, consciousness. And then he spoke of the conditions that contribute to that. And then made this significant statement of enlightenment. And the concept itself, of course, has been and continues to be passed down from uh, one tradition to another. And unfortunately, in the course of two and a half thousand years, the word itself has been like the Buddha himself, almost simultaneously has been boosted through projection, through interpretation, into a state seemingly beyond the capacity of ordinary mortals. And thus there has come about uh, an apprehension, if not a, a, a fear or a, a doubt or uncertainty about the employment of such words as enlightenment or realization or discovery of ultimate truth, simply that in the passage of time such concepts have gained a momentum to them which for some people a person feels this is out of reach. And when something is out of reach we have the tendency and the projection to push it even further out of reach. And then we will speak of realization of ultimate truth, of Buddha nature, as though it's something far distant, far removed, hardly accessible, and only discoverable through an immense amount of efforting and striving in the pursuance of time. And that is one of the rather sad consequences I feel and I've been saying for 15 or 20 years or more of tradition through the repetition of concepts, something so immediate and available for human beings has become, so to speak, elevated out of existence, gained a status which the Buddha never, never intended. Can we bring enlightenment awakening, realization, liberation, 
ultimate truth, discovery of the profound significance of emptiness, can we bring that right down to earth, right into our lives. And have the trust, and the, perhaps the most significant and important trust that any human being can ever extend herself or himself is that trust that one's birthright is enlightenment. That one's, one's essential characteristic as a human being is the immediacy of opportunity to discover that truth which is liberating. <coughs> and therefore the essential accompanying thought, as the Buddhist said, the third noble truth of life, the essential accompanying thought is it, not that it's so far away after many days, months, years, lifetimes or whatever, but the essential supportive thought for enlightenment is, I may not see it right now, but I know that it is closer to me than the thoughts in my own mind. That is the most supportive thought that you can give to realization, to your liberation, to moksha, to discovery, that you, that somewhere that thought says, it's not a long, long way away, it, its accessibility is closer than the thoughts in one's own mind. And I think that feeling for that, that, that sense for that, can begin to, as we were exploring in the inquiry group this afternoon with one person, that it can actually be, we can actually be, begin to sense the dissolution of this gap between who I think I am and this realization which the Buddha spent 45 years from the age of 35 to 80, speaking about again and again with untiring enthusiasm, as has been, as he pointed out, I only point to that which the previous enlightened ones have pointed to, and the same is being said from one generation of awakened teachers to the living generation, as it will go to the next generation. I only, he says, I only point to that which has been pointed out from previous liberated beings. So this, I would say, is a first statement of trust. Accessibility, immediacy, feeling for something close at hand and therefore Tremendous interest. Interest tends to wane in life terribly easy when we are asked on a very long-term basis and far into the future to sustain effort. But when something is close and immediate, then I think there's a, a warming to something, and that is what the Buddha is speaking again and again. Then in the fourth noble truth, the first noble truth, there is suffering in the world. 
Not that life is suffering. If life was suffering, if that was life, there would be no possible way out of it and a human being couldn't possibly have any other experience because all of life would be suffering. But there is suffering in life. This suffering which arri arises in life when the conditions are there for the suffering to arise, it will arise. No man, woman on earth can stop it arising when the conditions are there. It arises in the character of the conditions. So the second noble truth is dealing with those conditions. Blindness, ignorance, desire, attachment, identification with the push and pull of personal, social, environmental, political, economic circumstances. And if I may say, sometimes with the teachings of the Buddha, sometimes there's been a misunderstanding, I would say, because the Buddha has referred to the, the total uh, a variety of conditions that contribute to a human suffering in life and has referred in the very text here to political, social, economic, environmental factors as well as the internal ones which contribute to human uh, suffering. He's not just a meditation teacher. And then he has said, and he does something quite, I think, uh, s significant in a way. He speaks of, and again, misunderstanding, I do feel, or not, uh, not misunderstanding, but other ways of understanding here, because the teachings are, if they're of any use, they've got to be relevant to your and my life. What other? Otherwise, it's just theory and abstract. And then he speaks of the eightfold path, the noble eightfold path. Path he uses. Path. One thinks of path of going from point A to point B in time. But surely, if we think of path, doing our practice, developing our practice, cultivating our mind, evolving as a human being and all of that language, it seems to bring in a feeling of passage of time, doing things in the course of time. But I wonder whether that really is what is intended. So there is this eightfold path, right understanding, right attitude, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right awareness, right samadhi, meaning right depth of meditation. All of these are factors in the Eightfold Path. What does that mean for you and for me? It means none of us can leave a stone unturned in our life. If this way of life is to be free from a belief system, then one asks oneself, what in life is worth understanding? What in life is worth understanding? What in life is a valuable attitude towards life for a human being? What in life, each time you and I speak and the words come out into this world and affect this world that we live in, what is worth speaking about? When we are engaged in work which will probably bring in for many people as well as study 40 hours a week or more of their life and quite often a lot of thought and concern after the formal working periods for those in that situation. What is a livelihood with which is commensurate 
with a spiritual life. What in life is worth making an effort towards, an effort about, putting an effort into? What in life is doing that? In mindfulness and awareness, what in life is being worth being mindful of and aware of? What is the value of, of, of meditation and, and deep meditation? How does that relate to all those other factors? And the human being, when she looks at himself or looks at herself, says, hey, wait a minute. What I am hearing here is things about my whole existence. My whole existence is concerned with, right underst with understanding, with attitude, with action, with livelihood, with effort, with speech, with awareness, with uh, uh, meditative, uh, meditative uh, depth. Any authentic and genuine li life can't say, human being can't say to himself, well, that does, none of that concerns me. It is us. That is our existence. And then I have noticed, if I may say, in, in uh, the years of, uh, uh, as a servant of the Dharma, that I, the way I look at the so-called Eightfold Path may be a little different from the conventional viewpoint, but I, th I would like, because I would, wouldn't I, like to think that it is, again, in harmony with what the Buddha is saying. Sometimes a human being, in her or his life, in one's life, and this is where you must look into your life for this as much as anybody else of us in this world. Sometimes one looks into one's life and one says, I want to be familiar with each one of these factors of the Eightfold Path. And as you hear about them or as you read about them or reflect on them, you be perhaps begin to recognize that somewhere in one or more of those, something is unfulfilled. Something, there is some lack of, uh, of understanding or awareness or there's some area in which the way that one speaks about things or one's livelihood or whatever preoccupies that does need addressing. And if one imagines for a moment that just by sitting cross-legged morning, noon and night that somehow doing that will be the solution to a life of, of to the spiritual life, to a life of uh, integrity, to a life of uh, uh, deep wisdom in life, and think, well, I can just forget all of that, put that aside, it doesn't matter so much. Then one is saying, yes, I'll upturn these stones which are suitable to me, but this one I'll ignore. And I think the message of the Buddha, the teachings of, of, the, of the Dharma, is to look very sensitively and carefully as possible and to say, what is my relationship to each and every one of these factors of life? Because my life is held in that eightfold path for better or worse. So what I have noticed over the years with a person or per persons, that sometimes in the course of these retreats, or in the course of uh, meetings with people, or in public talks, or uh, various happenings which take, take place. But sometimes a person has looked at herself or himself and said, this, some area of my life in this uh, Eightfold Path, 
something there really does have to be addressed. And it's not really until that feels really addressed and looked at and worked with that one then can really begin to contemplate seriously and in a focused way on the third and the major of all those four noble truths, and that is the realization of ultimate truth, the emancipation of the human being, and all that's implied with it. All of that, as I say, is, uh, takes trust. Takes trust. And some people, some, some of us, and I am no exception uh, to that, have been in a movement in our life at some point or points in the past, and we have stopped dead in our tracks in something which seemed to be earlined or marked onwards for our life, a career thing or a relationship event or a, or a particular kind of lifestyle or whatever. And there's been a point along that movement in time where in which we have stopped and we have come to a, a, a junction, a crossroads in our life. And at that point of the crossroads, at that point, we have to be making a decision and we know that somewhere in that decision it's going to have a kind of long-term impact on us. And some of you in this room will be and are already in these very days here, sitting here and walking here and being here with your being and your silence and sometimes you reach the junction and that junction says, am I going to stay with the old, with the securities, or with the comforts, or with the patterns, or whatever, or is it on the pivotal point for change? And in that respect, every human being in a situation like this, we, as I say many times, we need perhaps more than anything else in our life the kindnesses and support and the silence of each other so that consciousness and its conditions can really stand out to the foreground. We don't want to waste our time, a lot of time, talking to each other and going over things. We don't want to waste our time in dialoguing back and forth and being stimulated by one and stimulated by another and all of that mentality. We're, we're in a situation of this silence in these days of this retreat together that in, in this actual silence what it means that the, the support itself is so silent that you, I, we, we are rendered naked in this silence. Rendered naked in it. So rendered naked in this silence that it doesn't matter at all whether you're a man or a woman, it's no relevance in the spiritual life. So naked in this silence, it doesn't matter whether you're married or whether you're single, whether you're a monk or whether you're a, a lay person. It doesn't, it doesn't matter whether you're young or old or rich or poor or black or white or whatever. It's a complete irrelevance. And that irrelevance renders one naked because it's superficial, all of those externalized 
dualities. And it's only in the realization, as the Buddha said, see body in body, see feelings in feelings, see the mind in the mind, see the Dharma in the Dharma. That means all of those dualities which I just related to you are the most superficial, shallow expression of human existence. Black, white, young, old, male, fem female, whatever other duality you, you dream up, they're all on the external fringe of things and all of the roles that you and I have, including the role of teacher, including the role of student or yogi or meditator or whatever it might be, all those roles, all superficial. Such nakedness is asked of us. In that nakedness, that enlightenment gets very close. That is where trust is. Sometimes in this relationship to this phenomenal world that we live in and our experience of it, our, our nakedness in it. And it's rather interesting, once, sometimes people ask me when we're speaking of the tradition of awakening, tradition of enlightenment. Does the Buddha use such a word? They would say yes, and there's a lovely word in the Sanskrit, in the Pali language, which, the la which is the language that the Buddha is said to have spoken in. And the word is akinchina, akinchina. And kinchina, kinchina means something, something. Akinchina means not something. Sometimes we relate to life, particularly when we look at ourselves and we keep looking at ourselves through the notion of being something in a particular way, as I just related to you some of those dualities. And we get so identified with that, so involved in that, we enter, enter through any single one of those identities, rich, poor, young, old, black, white, east, west, this, that, whatever, through the identification with that kinchina, the idea of being something or somebody, we enter into that identification is to enter into conflict. It is to set up a model of the life and say this against that, through that identity with that. Sometimes we can't see deeper than the appearance of our skin. So I say, there are the four noble truths. There is suffering in this world. Suffering has its conditions for it. There is a cessation of, of suffering which is called enlightenment or realization or ultimate truth or liberation. And there is the eightfold path. That means looking and being conscious and alert as a human being to each and every one of them and seeing is and asking oneself with the, all the honesty and truthfulness that we can muster. Is any one of these factors of the Eightfold Path of such that it is, it is inhibiting my liberation as a human being? 
don't have to be concerned with the cultivation and the practice and the efforting of each and every one. No human being will find complete happiness and perfection in the Eightfold Path because it's only found in the cessation of suffering, not in a spiritual path and practice. Sometimes then we look at our world and we hear <coughs> in our relationship to the world that we live in, we get multiple kind of impressions and views about the world that we live in. And if you just take a single day in your life like today, and you say, well, what's been my experience of today? What's my experience of now? You listen to the evening Dharma talk before this. number of you, most of you, were sitting in the meditation hall. Before that, you're experiencing tea. Before that, there's the inquiry group, and so on and so forth, as you look back and reflect over the day. So when speaking in this way, I'm referring to the physical activities mostly. I did this this morning and then 45 minutes later I did this and 45 minutes later or an hour later I did this and it's been the rhythm the of my day, the timetable of my day viewing from a physical position. Then you look at your inner life and you say when you experience what your inner life is, what's gone on inside today? inside your feelings, inside your thoughts, your perceptions, your memories, your plans, the situations for those of you who are in a small group meeting or in a one-to-one -one with us, as well as all that's gone outside and now. One says, if I look like that, if I dare reflect in that way, it seems like multiple things have been going on. And like, and, and like for, quote the Buddha for a moment, the Buddha said that, he said, that the arising of thought, of a thought, in consciousness is so fast, he said, that he found it difficult to give an analogy to compare the speed. How many thoughts have arisen today? Probably more than all the leaves and all the trees which are left in Budgaya. How many single thoughts are there? And with each one of those particular thoughts which have been arising today, some of those thoughts which have been arising today, millions of them, have some kind of content to them. Some of them seem to be like just cells, like thoughts, like brain cells, just sliding off the brain and disappearing into the ether. One has no idea where those thoughts came from. One has no clue as to where they go. And sometimes things have been happening for you today, as I say, whether it's in the meditations of the day, whether it's at the mealtime, or meetings with myself or other teachers, and something has impacted on you. And these teachings are certainly meant to impact on human beings, no question. And sometimes in that impact which takes place on us, we feel things stirred up inside. 
Obviously, we say to ourselves, I don't want things stirred up inside of me. I want to get back to my bliss. I want to get back to my quietitude or whatever. But we're not concerned with the quietitude. We are concerned with the heart of the teachings which rest solely and squarely and roundly and any way you imagine on this third noble truth. On this third noble truth, the cessation of suffering or the realization of the ultimate truth or <coughs> the discovery of what emptiness means in all of its profound beauty. This is what we are concerned with. So we say, well, things are so complex in this world. There's so much uh, diversity. It's so hard to sort everything out. And this very thought sometimes seems to be like a, a, a thought amongst millions of thoughts. And sometimes I think we're afraid. Nothing else. But we're afraid to bring such the awareness to look so simply at life, so purely, in the most pure sense of what that means, most purely at the things which we are concerned with. If we look at those things which we are concerned with and truly look at them, I say we can realize emptiness in the immediacy of things and everything that the Buddha has ever said and any sage of realized wisdom has ever said will be easy because one knows where the essence is. That's the third noble truth. What is pure, simple seeing? Do we need to be so concerned with the content? With our storylines that go on as an example. We get so much involved in the content of the story, the personal history of things. We get s that, that becomes such an infatuation. It's like seeing we can't see the wood for the trees. We're so involved in the shape and the color, and it looks like this and looks like that, and it might happen like this and it might happen like that, that we can't see the wood of it. So sometimes, if we take for a moment just one factor of the Eightfold Path, the second one, the right attitude, <laughs> something happens and we are really stirred up by something. That can happen to anybody, any moment, quite innocently, quite unexpectedly, something stirs one. It can come in the form of the day, it can come at any moment from outside of oneself in a letter, in a telegram, and certainly over the years since uh, the mid-1970s of teaching in this hall here, there have been a number of occasions where I have had to go to somebody and give some difficult information to that person through a letter, through a telegram uh, that has come. One never knows in this world what today or tomorrow offers us. <coughs> then we say, sometimes we're, we're, something impacts on us. What is the attitude? What is the outlook? 
What is the way of relating to that situation? That will make a difference. If, that, that, if there is an attitude there, and if we have a trust in that attitude, perhaps from that basis, from that attitude, perhaps something truly will be understood out of the situation. And then we begin to sense and feel that all these factors of the Eightfold Path are part of a conscious day-to-day -day life. So, those of you who have been experiencing a bit of a rough ride today, and I hope that some of you have been experiencing such today, what was the attitude in that rough part of the day? What was going on through the midst of that, those difficulties, that turmoil, that confusion, that whatever? <coughs> so see, something about factors of life, eightfold path and trust, somehow valuable but essentially, what is this pure seeing I'm speaking about that makes the third noble truth available to us each day of our life. One of those pure expressions of seeing, whatever the storyline that's going on, think how much of it is concerned with either arising or passing. issue which is going on in life, preoccupation with life, certain issues in life, doesn't have to be personal at all, not, nothing, I'm not speaking, thinking personally, just in any situation, in any scenario, where you know you are involved in it in some way or other, through whatever, <coughs> in a very pure direct seeing, how much of it is actually concerned with arising and passing? One, or the other, or both? Every time there's a problem, an issue, a complexity, a conflict, a pain, a suffering, a sadness, a fear, a jealousy, an envy, a greed, an aggression, or whatever, how much of all of that, in all of its apparent differences, is actually concerned with arising or passing or both? When we speak of pure seeing here for liberation in life, then we see in this relative world this arising and passing. How much, when you're looking into life, honestly and directly and openly, are you concerned with arrivals and departures? We have a room full of travellers, my goodness, who haven't dwelt on this by now. How much of the conversation, how much of the thinking, how much of the preoccupation of mind, how, much have you, how many times have you said to yourself, not only here but elsewhere, as, as well, God, all we seem to be talking about is arriving and departing. 
going and leaving. And all the pleasures of it and the pains of it and the possibilities of it and the fears of it. How much life is involved in this? And how come there's so much involvement in the arising and the passing? How much there's so much involvement in the um, arrival and departure? What has the human mind done to get so involved and not realize the emptiness of that involvement? How much when we are pure seeing, purely looking just at the, that what we are concerned with in this phenomenal world is concerned with continuity or change? Well, on any issue you like. Anything you're preoccupied with. Anything you've been talking about. Anything you've been making a fuss of in your life or in my life about anything. Who's going to be so bold to say it had nothing to do with continuity or change? Who's going to be so bold to say it had nothing to do with arrival and departure? Had nothing to do with arising or passing or both? What an extraordinary world we live in. What's stopping us from seeing purely and simply and directly and taking out of the world, so to speak, all that we have done to make it complicated? Could it be possible that we acknowledge wholeheartedly and as much as our selves, so to speak, will allow, that all this preoccupation with arising and passing and arrival and departure and the same and differences and continuity and change and all that. It's simply that something has gone on, on in the perception, something has gone on in the m mental feeling apparatus in which one has picked up on that. Isolated it. Made something of it and not seen the emptiness of it. And this realization of the emptiness of it is the realization which is called enlightenment. It soon sees the emptiness of it. And one knows, and one knows as clear as the hand is on the end of the arm, one knows owing to this emptiness all things are possible. Owing to, without this emptiness, nothing is possible. Emptiness makes everything possible. And one has realized this emptiness, and because one has realized this emptiness, there is no pain in life, there is no suffering in, in life, because one sees this emptiness makes everything possible. Without emptiness, nothing is possible. And this is the heart of the Buddha's Dharma, heart of the realized human being's 
teaching. Therefore I say the same message two and a half thousand years ago and as the Buddha acknowledged the same message before him, message after him and the same message when this person and others have breathed their last it will still be said in this world. Emptiness makes all things possible. Realize emptiness, all things are possible. May all beings see into the nature of things. May all beings be realized. May all beings touch upon immediate awakening. Let us have two or three minutes silence together, shall we please? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.